You're a machine. No. No, you're not a machine? Yes. Yes, you are, or yes, you're not? Yes. Yes, what? Yes, not. Talk about a malfunction. Not malfunction, Stephanie. Number five is alive. Welcome to Now Playing's bonus short circuit retrospective series. Here's Johnny. Hosted by Stuart. Well, the cat is dragged in a sight for four eyes, that is for sure. Justin. Oh, this guy's a genius. Well, above average. And Arnie. Well, you sure don't talk like a machine. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Holy shit. Oh, shit. Where's sea shit? Listener discretion is advised. Let's party. Today we're discussing Short Circuit, starring Ali Sheedy, Steve the Goot Gutenberg, Fisher Stevens, Austin Pendleton, G.W. Bailey, directed by John Badham. This is the now playing co-host who always likes getting his hands on some new software, Arnie. And this is specialized talker undergoing art retrospective torture in Los Angeles. <laughs> you didn't know Stuart in LA was an acronym, did you? <laughs> and Justin Five is alive. Justin Five. <laughs> I need input. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Justin. Listeners of Marvelicious Toys have heard Justin talk Marvel with us over there for over five years and on Star Wars Action News even before that. And you've come over here to now playing to talk short circuit. Hey, you know, if I'm going to jump in, I'm going to jump in with Short Circuit. (laughs) (laughs) It's a day full of surprises. Who knew we were doing this? I didn't until like a week ago, but it fits. I mean, it's worth pointing out on Fridays for the last six weeks or so, we had gold level donation series looking at all the science fiction films of 1986. There was more than six films, and so we decided we were going to add one more here just to promote that series and to get one more shot in about talking about summer of 1986, a big summer, but short circuit. Yeah. Yeah. This was a movie we really talked about doing in our sci-fi summer of 86 series. And just to remind you, the movies we have reviewed from there are Critters, Invaders from Mars, Space Camp, Labyrinth, Big Trouble in Little China, and Night of the Creeps. And we had a lot of back and forth about what movies to include. And I know, Stuart, you were in favor of doing Short Circuit like we did Critters, where we focus on the main movie, but then we went over the other ones. And I put in my heels and said, no, sir, we will talk Short Circuit (laughs) 2. You did. I want to add there, I wasn't advocating that we ever did Short Circuit. But if we did Short Circuit, we should do both movies all at once. That's how we handle Critters. We talk about Critters for 90% of that show. And then we go, I would say, five minutes apiece on each sequel. There were four movies in total. I'll just put it out there. I don't remember much about Short Circuit. I saw it once on video about a year after 1986. 
And honestly, I think I remember Who's Johnny, the theme song, much better than anything I saw. I remember a scene of a robot coming into a bathroom and saying nice software to Ali Sheedy. She covers her breasts. And I remember a poster in which he's hit by lightning. But otherwise, I couldn't have told you a thing about this movie. Hey, that's kind of where I'm coming at it from, too. You know, I feel like I saw this once or twice back in the day. But as I'm watching this movie, all these one-liners are coming back to me like... This must have been on in the background a lot more than I was aware of as a kid. <laughs> because a bunch of these one-liners, I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I used to say that. <laughs> there was one that I was like, oh, that was a playground diss if ever I heard it. There was one I repeated. I And I know what it is. When we get there, I'll mention it. I saw Short Circuit in theaters twice opening weekend. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was... Probably six bucks of that $6.6 million number one opening. I went with the same friend twice. We went on Saturday and couldn't believe how great it was. We went back on Sunday. Wow. That friend wasn't me, by the way. No, no. (laughs) I had it on VHS, taped off HBO or something, and I watched it a handful of times. I definitely remembered most of what we saw here today. I've seen Short Circuit 2 a lot more, strangely, because I did watch that one pretty regularly on VHS for a year or two. Mm. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Masochist. That's why I needed more than five minutes it took it of my life. Okay, I get it. Wait, is it robots? Because, I mean, that's the thing of this movie. That's the big selling point is I feel like this was the first one. The 80s had tons of robots. I mean, there was lots of movies where we were selling artificial intelligence, but they looked like us. They looked like little kids. Short Circuit feels different because they actually, it's not a guy in a suit, you know, it's not R2-D2 or C-3PO where people are dressing in robotic gear. This is an actual robot that's going to try to convince us it's alive. And Star Wars was the inspiration for this film. To make aspiring screenwriters everywhere just curse their lives. This was a homework assignment that S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock of Tremors and Wild Wild West fame (laughs) took when they were in a screenwriting class in L.A. and they had to do a live reading in front of class and one of their co-students was a producer's son and the son's like, this script's great, took it to his dad and this homework assignment got made and it came from their idea of... Star Wars made R2-D2 and C-3PO seem real, seem alive. Nobody questioned it. C-3PO could get put back together, but nobody questioned that these were living beings. And so they wondered what that would be like in the real world. How would people react if they actually stumbled upon a live robot that had awareness like those do? So that was the genesis of this film. I mean, and that was the 80s. I wanted a robot so bad. Do you guys remember the ones they were selling in like the store, like Verbot or Omnibot? Like you could voice train them to like bring you trays of food. Oh yeah, there was the toys that you could go forward, <laughs> turn left. <laughs> I am still waiting for my breakfast omelet. Damn you, Verbot! He's <laughs> not shown up in thirty years. I had Marzon, the inflatable walking robot. <laughs> wow. I can even remember being at the mall and there was a line around the block to put coins in the talking Coke machine. Do you remember this? The White Oaks got the talking Coke machine and people would overpay for a can of Coke because it would say, thank you. 
I do remember Aladdin's Castle, our local arcade, right around this time of like 1986. They had all the arcade games, Punch Out and Pac-Man 2 or Donkey Kong Jr. And yet there was one game I was drawn to. It was the computer that could talk and you'd pay it 50 cents and you'd get 60 <laughs> seconds of typing in sentences to hear it say it. So, you know, you always made it say something dirty like, I want to f- your sister. But <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to go with the NES robot. Rob, remember that? It played Gyromite, robotic operating buddy. I had the robot. Yeah, it was not very good. A lot of spinning going on there. Not a lot of robotics. I'll tell you, he was good at keeping a secret, but not much of a talker, that Rob. He was not as good a buddy as I had hoped. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, you're right. Robots were everywhere. I mean, look at Rocky Three. That was Pauly's gift. Look at at Silver Spoons. He had a robot that, you know, was in the background that every little kid was like, ooh, I want one of those. (laughs) Was it Alfonso? (laughs) (laughs) yes the dancing robot and look at just other television shows short circuit reminds me in several of its design decisions of kit from knight rider which was still a huge show in 86 yeah so i was into this concept when short circuit came out we were on the tail end of being too old for it i was about 13 you know junior high maybe this is not cool but i did rent it because i was interested in the subject matter and the fantasy of having that automated life of the future i did want to see this robot i wanted to see if a robot could be a movie star oh i had to see this on screen primarily for johnny five i'll say that but Steve the Goot. I mean, I was a big Gutenberg fan by this point, having seen the three Police Academy films, the third one in theaters, and Cocoon. I saw that. Yeah. I was going to say, what else is there to be a fan of Gutenberg over? But you're right, Cocoon. And the next year, he'd have the biggest hit of his career, which I also saw because of him, Three Men and a Baby. Yes, he had an 80s. Inexplicably, he was a star in that decade. And it was a curiosity coming back is seeing two people that at the time I saw Short Circuit thinking these are major stars who have, I since not seen very much of after the 80s left us. Yeah, Steve Gutenberg and Ali Sheedy were a draw as well. I agree. See, to me, Ali Sheedy felt like maybe second choice for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's the best they could get. Ali Sheedy at this point was coming off of her brat packiness, you know. Yeah, Breakfast Club was huge. Yeah, Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire were both just the same year this movie started being filmed, 1985. And I knew her from War Games, and so I was excited to see her interact with another robot. War Games, also directed by John Badham. Yes, and that one, for those that might have forgotten this movie, I feel like it was big at the time, but maybe not so much now. They just came out with a sequel a few years ago for sci-fi. What? Oh, for sci-fi. That explains it all. (laughs) Don't have any more questions about that. But yeah, we were so afraid of nuclear war, and there was an artificially intelligent computer that basically was going to launch the nukes. I don't remember how Matthew Broderick got involved, but he was the one that saved the day. And Ali Sheedy was his girlfriend? He was the hacker who caused all the problems and then fixed all the problems. And yes, Ali Sheedy was a girl from his high school class and joined him on the adventure. And don't forget that she was also author Ali Sheedy. Since 12 years old, she was a published author. Never knew that till doing the bonus features for Short Circuit. She wrote a best-selling kids book at the age of 12. (laughs) Maybe that's why I haven't seen her in years. She's writing kids books. 
She writes poetry now. She was nice to mice was the title. And I do feel like there's a little bit of that in her character. It was about a woman that kept rats in her skirt because she loved animals so much. Who would have thought we'd be talking about Ali Sheedy twice this year? First X-Men Apocalypse <laughs> and now. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's right. She was blinking. You miss it in Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. But this was a hit at the time. It was open at number one. I think we talked about this. It, the We always like to, when we're looking at this summer of sci-fi, look at the date, May 9th. So it was really the kickoff. It was a little bit, it was about a month after Critters, but before anything else that we would have covered. And it's the only 1986 movie we're covering that opened at number one. All the rest of them were kind of unloved. <laughs> I think that was a reason why we did this as well. You can't talk about sci-fi and not acknowledge that this was a big one. Again, I wonder if it was just as much for the song as anything, but that was a big hit song. To put it in perspective, though, number one back then, $6.6 million. <laughs> Today, studios weep if they yeah. open at $6.6 million. Back then, a huge hit. Yeah. I think the total gross was about $40 million, which is the same as, yeah, Police Academy 3. You mentioned that Steve Gutenberg was still doing those movies at that time, and it was the equivalent of the gross of one of those films. And it opened above. There were three movies opening that week. Short Circuit's the only one I've heard of. The other two, Fire with Fire, has Craig Schaefer from Nightbreed. Oh, I think it was like a teen thing. Uh, vague, vague memories. Never saw it. And Canon Films' Dangerously Close. Mm, I don't know that title, but I know Canon Films. <laughs> Next. <laughs> Also, since I like to look at the pop culture from that year, the number one song when this movie opened, mm. The Weeknd. So I'll go with the May 10th best song, mm. West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys. Oh, that's a good one. I like Pet Shop Boys. Yeah, see, now I'm getting transformed back to sixth grade here. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know? The one that was just coming off of being number one, Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. Oh, wow. That was 86, huh? Yeah, they they were a little bit robotic, those girls. Again, I think I remember the video more than even the song, but I got a little robot reference as well. I like to look at what's going on in history. We've already kind of talked about what was going on in May of 1986, if you go to our donation shows. But one thing I forgot to mention that I think is appropriate is G-O-E-S. Geostationary Operational Environmental Satellite System was launching. That seems like more words than four letters. <laughs> <laughs> number five, GOS number five was already successful. It was alive. It was up in space looking at weather. It was a weather satellite and they were launching the next one. It was the first time that NASA was launching something since Challenger and it also blew up. So it was another disaster they just swept under the rug. I didn't even know this, but yeah, they had had two disasters that year, and this one had happened about five, six days before Short Circuit opened. Yikes. That was an unmanned spaceship, though, right? Yes. Yeah, worth pointing out, nobody was in that one. But the engine failed, and yeah, we just lost Go's G. <laughs> so Who's Johnny wasn't number one that weekend. I, I feel like the song might have propelled it to the top of the charts, but... It did dominate the summer. I know I was jamming out to it then and now. Who's Johnny? All right. I watched the video again, and that thing's the Ooh. classic. They couldn't get Steve Gutenberg, so they had literally <laughs> a black and white cardboard standee of him. Singing in a black and white striped uh, police jumper. Like, it's strange. <laughs> 
And the only one they got back from the film is Ali Sheedy. It's a courtroom scene where Johnny Five, or at least a robotic hand, which is all they could afford for the video, was doing <laughs> pranks on the DA and the judge. And the DA, of course, had to take off her glasses and find out she's sexy and dance. But I do have a question. Mm. Who is Johnny in that song? What is that song about? <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. I looked up the lyrics. I'm still not sure. It seems to me like El DeBarge is singing that his girlfriend's cheating on him with a guy named Johnny. Or he's cheating on her with a guy named Johnny. <laughs> that is actually... <laughs> she says... <laughs> Yeah, I agree. It, there's some ambiguity there that is not wrapped up in this court case. The video was really a time trip. And and worth pointing out, DeBarge, he had just gone solo. He had had a big hit for another movie, Rhythm of the Night, Last Dragon. So this was his, sort of his follow-up. And it has a very similar sound. I love this song. I thought it was great. I did too. And the video was pure 80s pleasure. It just I love that they tried to connect it to the movie, that they got Ali Sheedy. Yeah, that they have the clips. There's At some point, they pull out a VHS of Short Circuit and play it as evidence in whatever this Who is Johnny trial is. And <laughs> we get to see all the greatest moments. They're building up the fact that Johnny Five is, is the Johnny of the movie. But I agree. It could have been a song about infidelity, a cheating girlfriend. And they just said, hey, why don't we put it in that robot movie? I actually think it's the very last line. This robot in this movie is number five. At the very end, the robot voice is over. We don't even see him. I'm Johnny Five. And I wonder if they got the song and went, okay, let's make him Johnny at the end to tie it in. They actually wanted money for nothing. And when they were filming this, they had Dire Straits playing the whole time. And it was the studio like, no, we need a tie-in hit single and got to barge. L. DeBarge. Yeah, right. Don't call him DeBarge. That's the family name. He had gone solo. <laughs> but I like Rhythm of the Night. I love Who's Johnny. I wish they still made videos like the Who's Johnny one. It is totally cheesy. The video clips aren't even edited well to match the rhythm at all. It's literally like your stereo is on while you're watching a movie. But awesome. Well, the point is they're teasing this hand here. That's the robot hand. Like, that's what we want to know. I mean... I think that that's why we got to get into the plot, Arnie. Like, who is Johnny? Tell us, please. Steve Gutenberg plays Dr. Newton Crosby, a reclusive robotics designer at Nova Laboratories. His technology produced the Strategic Artificially Intelligent Nuclear Transport Robot, or SAINT. But when SAINT Robot Number 5 gets struck by lightning, it wipes his programming and imbues him with artificial intelligence. Or, as the robot says... Number five is alive! Looking for input to learn more about the world, number five inadvertently leaves the Nova campus and ends up at the home of animal hoarder Stephanie Speck, played by Ali Sheedy. The two form a deep friendship as Stephanie introduces number five to everyday life, including television, and in return, number five scares away Stephanie's abusive ex-boyfriend, Frank. But Nova is on the hunt for number five, worried the errant droid may cause severe harm with its nuclear laser. Nova project leader Dr. Howard Marner, played by Austin Pendleton, gives the job of recovering number five to Nova security Captain Scroder, played by Steve Gutenberg's Police Academy co-star, <laughs> G.W. Bailey. I love that it's a reunion. <laughs> they must have the same manager. And they should both have fired him. <laughs> 
Hey, this is perhaps Bailey's best performance. I've seen all the Police Academy films and Mannequin, and he's best here. <laughs> I hope that I never know. Wait till we do comedy of 1987, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing Scroder's penchant for destruction, Crosby also goes to rescue the robot, accompanied by his assistant, Ben Jabatia, played by Fisher Stevens. Crosby meets up with Stephanie, and during a secret meeting with Number 5, Crosby is convinced that Number 5 is alive and not just malfunctioning. But he's unable to stop Scroder, who first has three more saint robots attack Number 5, and when 5 reprograms them to perform three Stooges routines... Scroder calls in an aerial strike, and number five is blown up by missiles. Dr. Mariner fires Scroder for his insubordinate and costly methods, and Crosby and Stephanie mourn the loss of number five, only to find out the robot is still alive. He built a decoy out of spare parts in Newton's truck, and it was that unintelligent robot that Scroder destroyed. So Stephanie and Newton decide to go live on his 40-acre farm with plenty of room for Stephanie's animals and for the robot, who renames himself Johnny Five as credits roll. Mm. All right, let's talk about names here. Let's talk about Saint. Strategic, artificially intelligent, and here's the part I want to understand, nuclear transport. So they're designed to carry nukes. This is a weapon of mass destruction. Yeah, at one point, one of the generals says he can, they carry like a 50 megaton bomb or payload or something like that. Right up Main Street, Moscow. Drop right. it behind enemy lines, carrying a nuke, roll it up to the Kremlin, no American <laughs> casualties. Okay, but are they like they they hold it like a baby or is it like built inside them? Because I'm gonna feel very different about this robot jumping around the streets of Oregon. That's less cute knowing that he could go nuclear. <laughs> I always pictured him holding it like pizza delivery. Yeah, I don't want him to be, like, dancing to Saturday Night Fever and suddenly Mushroom Cloud. That just, <laughs> it, it, it kills the mood for me. Yes, I don't think they're nuclear warheads in and of themselves. Okay. They're conveyances for... Yeah, yeah, that's... Nuclear transport means that they transport the nukes. It's a new way. Why fire a missile when you can send this robot? And I agree, they're very impressive here in their opening demonstration. Yeah, making gin and tonics and blowing up conveyances <laughs> with dummies. <laughs> It was about the bartending. I'm like, it's one thing to blow up a tank, but damn it, if you can make a good gin and tonic, I'm sold. It's worth $11 million. <laughs> <laughs> They really do hammer home the $11 million price tag in this movie. I was wondering how they were going to differentiate. I remembered that he gets hit by lightning and that he becomes sentient and kind and all of that. So how are they going to make him in the beginning here look like a killer? It's the eyes. They got red eyes, and that's what makes them scary in this standoff. You know, they have a very symbolic, like, we open on these beautiful red flowers, and they're crushed by the arriving tanks, and the robots are in a foxhole, and what do they do? Their eyes glow, and they fire lasers. They have little laser cannons on their shoulders, and I don't know if scary is the right word. If you were on a battlefield and saw these rolling at you, they're certainly no Terminator, but they hold their own. I definitely think that they prove with those red eyes, they got some fierceness. Yeah, the designer had quite the task there to create a robot that could both be intimidating and lovable without changing too much of its physical appearance. Yeah. And I think it does a good job at that. The hardest part for them is the director was insistent the robot be practical. 
you couldn't put stuff on there just for the sake of humanizing the droid. And it was the puppeteers and the designers who said, listen, you've got to have eyes. And they'd have to come up with justifications, like it's camera optics, and they wanted eyebrows, thinking that was a big way of doing it. So they had to come up with the idea that they have these shields for bright sunlight and things that would be practical on a robot that could also be used to emote. Mm-hmm. And the tank treads that they run on, they were done for a practical reason to hide the car battery that, you know, this is a combination of real remote control robot and puppeteering. Right. And the real RC robots had car batteries, but the fact that they're running on tank treads does give it a military application feel. And at this point, when they're talking, it's not done by the voice actor that's going to later. We're going to associate the voice of number five with him being alive. He doesn't talk or have that personality until he's fried. Right. As the originally programmed, they're like a speak and spell or mm-hmm. Stephen Hawking type, mm-hmm. of, type of voice. Yeah, I mean, one of them is the same program Stephen Hawking is known for using. And mm-hmm. it, it's always like, oh, my God, Stephen Hawking's in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to draw this robot from memory before watching it, you know, I would have forgot about the little rascal stabilizing wheel on the back that really just kind of stood out to me this time around. Yeah, I only noticed they don't really cut to it that much, so they must be trying to hide it. I only noticed it towards the end. I was like, wait, what? I didn't know he had a third leg, but yeah. They actually added that at the 11th hour because they wanted him to be able to pivot, and so they had to have a wheel that would allow that. But I don't know that they were trying to hide it, but they also weren't trying to draw attention to it, or... Much of the robot's design, really, this isn't the robot equivalent of a car movie where you're just ogling at the vehicle and its engine and everything. This is trying to convince you it's alive in the same way you wouldn't look at an actor and be, like, really focused on the chin and the elbow and the nose. They wanted you to be impressed by the performance and forget Johnny Five is a puppet or is remote-controlled, and... By and large, I say they are very successful. This droid is as alive to me as BB-8, R2-D2, C-3PO, all of them. Yeah, agreed with that. I, I was surprised. You know, I was a little reluctant to return to this movie, but I feel like instantly uh, they strike the right balance. I believe them as war machines, and once he gets fried and comes alive, I believe that he's sentient. They sell me that this is the star of our movie, even though I suppose... The star of our movie is really his creator, who's also here hiding in the background, kind of ashamed of his making a war machine, Steve Gutenberg's Newton. Can we just call him Gutenberg? Like, I don't know why they ever give him any other name in a movie. Newt Gutenberg? Yeah, they even kind of have a similar sound to it there. I, you know, And he always gives the same performance. He's always that kind of sweet but dumb everyman that, like, I just don't buy him as, like, robotic genius. And they don't really try. Like, when we find him, he's, like, off playing keyboards with one. Like, he, he mentions at one point, and I got a real question about this. He says to someone, you know, there's a party for all these politicians politicians and these military elite people they're showing off the robots he tells one of them that he originally conceived of it as a marital aid obviously that was a joke was it obviously a joke (laughs) well okay all right then let's get into this (laughs) i took it initially to mean that he is a person that is divorced 
and he was in a bad marriage and he spent all his time on this robot and that was the marital aid for him. But maybe, actually, given the fact that he hates the fact that this machine is going to be used for nuclear transport, even though that was the name, and that was the people supplying it, I do feel like he did have some other idea about what this robot could be, that maybe he did want it to, like, do the housework or something like that, and thus there's no fight about who's going to do the dishes, because this robot will do it. Yeah, obviously I don't think Johnny Five was ever intended by Gutenberg to be, you know, what marital aid is a euphemism for. He is oh not my God. anatomically correct. <laughs> I didn't have that thought, but leave it to you. <laughs> I mean, imagine if that was what was on his shoulder instead of a laser. I'm not even sure at the end that it won't be used that way, but we'll get there. I was going to say, I'm not entirely sure that Ali Sheedy hasn't looked at it that way. But, <laughs> but one thing about Gutenberg in this role and it's hard to find out too much about this film. The commentary that came out in the early 2000s on the DVD is one of the most dull I've ever listened to. And they do not provide too much background on, like, they said 20 minutes was cut from this film. It's hard to know what. But Austin Pendleton, who plays the president of Nova here, and he's done a ton of work. I, he's just one of those faces I know. I recognize his voice more. Yeah, he's done some Pixar stuff and things. He's still working today, and he's been working since the 60s. But he went on the record and said he was really just not happy with this movie. His role was significantly reduced, and Newton Crosby was supposed to be a complete antisocial recluse who had no human interaction skills that's why he didn't come out to the party that's why he spent all his time with robots is that he couldn't form human connections mm. and then they brought in gutenberg to play it and that just all went out the window because in his words gutenberg is just too likable and too personable a guy to ever play antisocial yeah you buy that he doesn't want to hobnob with these people because of what they've done to his creation but never that he he lacks the ability to socialize that's all gutenberg is he is like the party guy i think what we're saying here though is a lot of this beginning feels like it adds up to uh don't worry too much about the backstory let's get to the real thrust of this movie and so I think there's a lot of questions there that if you look too closely at, you're not going to get a satisfying answer for, you know? I mean, if you look at why the tech they have in this campus is so militarized, even though they might be a military company. I view them as the 80s version of Halliburton, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they have a control room with like a war map that takes up the entire thing. It's like, what what are they doing there normally? <laughs> but yeah, what did they have before they had Saint? It, it is worth begging those questions. I don't know. But what's funny is I always think of Steve Gutenberg being the funny one, but he's actually written as you say, Arnie, I think with that original concept in mind, he doesn't get a lot of the jokes. All of that is farmed out to his ambiguously foreign sidekick, Fisher Stevens. And guys, I got to ask right up top, is what he's doing here racist? <laughs> well, it depends on how you look at it. I surprisingly found more information about Fisher Stevens in this movie than any other aspect of this movie, other than perhaps all the puppeteering bonus features. But in today's society, everybody agrees that this would probably be considered racist. Aziz Ansari 
actually interviewed Fisher Stevens, and he did a piece for the New York Times where he wrote, Growing up, his favorite movie was Short Circuit 2 because it actually had an Indian man falling in love with a white woman, and he thought that was so progressive and just so amazing to actually see an Indian person in film. Later on, he looked up on IMDb and wonder what happened to that guy from Short Circuit 2 and realized he is white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fisher Stevens, had, at this point, I don't even know what he's famous for or if he is famous. My science project is what I think of him and also being Michelle Pfeiffer's allegedly abusive ex-husband. Yeah, I think that's about it. I still don't know exactly what he's famous for today. If I think of Fisher <laughs> Stevens, I think of this, Hackers, and Super Mario Brothers. Hackers, okay. He popped up in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia a few seasons ago, and that's the last time I had seen or heard of him or thought of him since this movie. Of course, maybe we're the ones stereotyping. He does say he's originally from Bakersfield and his ancestors <laughs> from Pittsburgh. I think that that was the joke, though, Arnie. I I think obviously that's not true. (laughs) But speaking of us possibly stereotyping, I do have to admit that at the age I was when this came out, he was kind of the template by which I would see other Indian stereotypes going forward for a few years. Yeah, and I think all foreigners, you know, Balki, Moscow on the Hudson with Robin Williams. The idea that anyone that was not from our land would come here and be this kind of animated, say it the wrong way, but love America. This is my stereotype of a foreigner. This is the height of Yakov Smirnov's career, too, so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as soon as that Berlin all fell, so did his career. (laughs) Stevens didn't want to do this, just to put it out there Mm. and this role actually was being played by bronson pinchot and it was written as a southern american not as a foreigner and finally the director just had this idea of what if we make him an indian who has trouble with the english language and fisher stevens like i can't play that that i I don't have that but he went method that he learned yoga and between the two movies before he did short circuit 2 he went and lived in india for a month and (laughs) he had a dialect coach (laughs) (laughs) wow he committed well on some level I, i respect that he's like i'm trying to be an actor and play a part that's the right instinct I ain't hating on the guy for him doing the Indian bit. I mean, we were well before political correctness and Love Guru would come out 20 years from this. So it's just a thing that was acceptable at the time. And Peter Sellers did it in the party. But Peter Sellers is funny. I don't feel like Fisher Stevens. He's certainly trying here. I just don't feel like his bit. That's why I'm going to complain. I'm not complaining about racism. I'm complaining about him dominating with unfunny colloquialisms. I loved him in this movie at the time. And rewatching it, I still think he's really funny in this. I I do. I can't help (laughs) it. I knew you would. I knew. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to be like, this ain't funny. And I'm just going to be like, best part of the movie. Second best. And in fact, the director did say on the commentary that when people come up to him to this day... And talk about their favorite things. Number one is, of course, Johnny Five. And number two is Ben, played by Fisher Stevens and his abuse of the English language. (laughs) I'll split the difference between both of you and say that I rolled my eyes at most of the things he said. But there was a few that got me to actually chuckle out loud. And so I kind of have to give it to him. Okay, yeah. Do you think I am doing this for my own self-gratification? 
Oh my goodness, I am sporting a tremendous Woody event about now. It's funny. That was one that gave me a chuckle and made me realize I had seen this movie more than a couple times as a kid. Yeah, maybe a few of them. But there was one line he said that I did wonder if it was bad when he goes, Oh, Bulldike. <laughs> Bulldike? Yes. Uh, the, the good news is I couldn't really hear a lot of it. Basically, I could only understand him when he was mangling a popular expression. When did he whip out Bulldike? Oh, Bulldike, you could not hold the water with that story. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was my reaction. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Some of the humor is surprising. This is predominantly a movie I would definitely advocate is made specifically for children but every now and then some of these things yeah if you don't want your kids coming back and asking you what an enormous woody is maybe you ought to hold off a few years his humor can sometimes straddle the difference between adults and kids well there's the nice software line too this was perfect for me when I saw this at 11 years old. You're the 11 year old pervert. I agree. It is, it's made for that. If you're an 11 year old that has already had your sexual awakening, go for it. <laughs> and El DeBarge was a big part of that. I blame MTV. But no, I definitely think Gutenberg is a non entity in this mm -hmm. film. Yeah. He is really bland. And I like him in other stuff. I really do. I think this and The Day After are his two worst castings. <laughs> oh, man. That is, that's his funniest role. I'll tell you that. Day After. Yeah. Oof. Where he plays a guy d dying of radiation poisoning <laughs> after the end of the world. Yeah, and he's trying to put bows in that girl's hair and it's falling out in giant clumps. Oh, yeah. Man. He's playing it straight. Yeah. It's, that's no. why it's painful. But this is his second worst role. I do not like him in this film. I do not like his character. I have, I don't dislike him either. I want to be stressed that he's just so bland, I forget he's in the movie. I thought he had a bigger part. What's surprising is it really is Sheedy's movie once she's introduced into it. But it takes a while to get to her. I mean, the star, I guess, we're not thinking about it correctly. We're looking at human actors. The star is this robot. And he is the one, no matter who he's hanging out, he's the one that is going to be the funny one. He's going to be the one with the personality. He's going to be the one you're looking at. And within 10 minutes, they got him zapped. He is alive. Struck by lightning in the best Frankenstein sense, right? I mean, these days, I'm like, all right, that wouldn't ever possibly happen. But back at 11 years old, I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah, this big military <laughs> tech company has never heard of surge protectors. They're charging the robots outside under huge power lines. Come on, guys. <laughs> in, in a, a thunderstorm. thunderstorm. Yeah. You know, here's my question about this. I remember that it was this contrivance that he got struck. And fine, whatever. We got to go with something here. Does he make the active choice to escape? Or does he get sort of accidentally thrown out with the trash? I can't understand why he's on the run here. I don't think he's on the run. I think he is... Until he gets to Stephanie's and starts getting input, I think he's just kind of been thrust in that direction. Okay. Yeah, he has no idea what is happening to him. He has no idea what escape means. He's tabula rasa. He just, he lost all his programming. So he's going to whatever is the most interesting. He's hungry for data, and so he's, wherever he can find it, that is where he's going to spin his wheels towards, so. Or treads, as the case may be. Yeah, that's why he gets outside the fence, and instead of going back, 
he makes the choice that he's going to just consume what our 80s pop culture world has in store, including Dr. Pepper ads. And I did like when his thoughts are being displayed on a screen back at Nova and the wouldn't you like to be a Pepper 2 comes up in the font and everything. <laughs> in War Games, is either of your memory about that movie strong? I saw it like last year. Was the robot a big part of it? He was just a computer, right? Yeah, there wasn't a robot. It was a computer system named Joshua that became self-aware and decided that it basically went kind of Terminator. It's going to nuke us all for our own sake. Okay, so it was a scarier version of this. It didn't have the wacky personality. It didn't tell the jokes. No, not at all. It liked to play chess. Okay, that's right. Want to play a game. What about Electric Dreams? That was out by this time, too, mm, right? I, yeah. I was thinking about that movie a little. I always liked that movie. I haven't gone back and probably shouldn't. And Heartbeeps. You guys remember Heartbeeps? It was oh, Andy Kaufman and Bernadette Pe Look it up because the makeup is scary. Oscar-nominated robot makeup. Bernadette Peters and Andy Kaufman are these robots that it's essentially the same plot. They get made at this factory and for some reason escape fall in love and decide they're going to elope. But they can only like walk like five steps an hour. So it's like the slowest chase scene you've <laughs> ever seen. It's not to be seen for more than a couple of minutes, but it definitely feels like a prequel to what we're getting here with Short Circuit. I would have much rather had Kaufman in this movie than <laughs> Gutenberg. I'll say that. You say that not having seen Heartbeats. <laughs> <laughs> True. A little bit of Kaufman goes a long way. Oh. <laughs> now, when Johnny Five gets struck, his voice becomes very childlike. I think it is worth pointing out. This is the same voice as Frank the Pug from Men in Black, oh. which is also one of our donation podcasts right now. I didn't realize there was that tie, but how coincidental. Okay. I, you know, he's got a lot of personality in his voice, and it matches this robot, and I do get enthusiasm. He is a child happy to run free in the world, and so for that, I, you know, a lot of his humor is not targeting me. He could probably be overbearing if I just looked at it from my adult vantage point. But I always try to have two when I'm going back to 1986. I also try to remember where I was in 86 and enjoy it as the 13-year-old me. And I think he is more enjoyable when you look at it from that vantage point. I'll agree that I enjoyed it more when I was 11, but... I don't have to be 11 to enjoy this. I'm actually having a little bit of fun as he's going around and falls off the bridge and pulls out a parachute and is looking at butterflies. I don't know. There's something so innocent and sweet about the way he's being puppeted. Total props to every technician involved in this film that I get emotion off of him. I, I am enjoying seeing him see the world anew. I can almost understand why parents would have babies by watching him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, what do you have to say to that, Justin? You are a parent. <laughs> I, yeah. And I sat down with my Johnny Five, you know. I mean, no, my daughter is 11, so I thought, hey, you know what? Perfect. She's about the same age that I was when I saw this movie for the first time. So uh, I want to see what today's modern kid thinks about this movie. Mm. And to be honest with you, a lot of stuff does not hold her attention. Hmm. I've tried watching 80s movies and stuff. There's a few that stick. She actually sat through this entire movie and enjoyed it. Oh, good. So okay. that actually surprised me a little bit. You know, she pointed out a few of the corny little things 
like some of the the special effects where you could tell it was not necessarily stop motion. Maybe it was like when Johnny Five was hopping like the grasshopper. Mm-hmm. That didn't look too great. But story wise, she was engaged with this. So I think Arnie, you're right. There's something to this movie that is engaging to the inner child in all of us. Did she identify with Stephanie? Because that's going to be, I think, our main human relationship here. We got the robot, of course, which is doing his thing, but he's going to get paired with this stereotypical animal-hugging, I would call her a hippie, but it's the 80s. Whatever hippies became, she's a yogurt salesman in a food truck who has collected every animal uh, that is homeless and turned her house into a shelter. (laughs) She has a catering truck to which I ask, does any food she cater not have hair and feces in it with the amount of animals in that house? Does it pass FDA inspection? Because I don't think so. (laughs) The raccoon was helping her make pasta, so I have to believe that it's contaminated. Uh, I mean, raccoons eat freaking garbage. Yes. I we agree. Call them trash pandas. Mm-hmm. That was one thing that Rory did bring up. She said the smell in that house must be atrocious. <laughs> it, it, there's, it's an offline. There's some old lady character that just wanders in for her one scene to say somebody from the city has come by to close you down. But that becomes a drop subplot. They don't pick up on that. But it was something I couldn't stop thinking about. I'm like, please condemn this house. I guess she leaves it at the end. Speaking of that house, did that look familiar to you guys at all? Did the scenery, the camera shots, any of that feel familiar? It didn't, but from the bonus features, I know this is filmed in the same town where they did Goonies. Goonies! I had to look it up. I thought it might have actually been Data's house that they might have repurposed, but it's in the same neighborhood. I did some Google mapping of it. It's all in that same little Astoria, Oregon neighborhood. Ah, I did not put that together. It felt like a magical place, and I think that was the art direction of it. You know, like it's off by its own, and there's this very long bridge behind it that feels artificially input into the frame. That's actually the bridge that goes from Astoria to Washington State. Oh, so it's real. It's not a map painting. Okay. They didn't have much money for map paintings in this film. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, yeah. Anyway, it felt like a air quote special place. And I guess it's so remote that, yeah, I can believe that it could become this wayward animal sanctuary for the crazy lady who puts mice under her skirt. Our poet and sometime actress, Ali Sheedy. And... I never noticed until I was watching this on the home theater as many times as I saw it on VHS, but I had like a 17-inch screen, so I did miss a lot of details. But even seeing it in theaters twice, I didn't realize her dog only had three legs. Mm-hmm. Did he, or was he just holding the one up? No, I, I really paid attention, and that's a three-legged dog. Oh, okay. So that's the kind of animal rescuer she is. And as a kid... I totally connected with her because I had dogs mm-hmm. and I yep. wanted raccoons and ferrets and birds and all that. I didn't think about the smell or the cost. And so I totally went with her. You know, as a child, she looked like a loving person. Coming back to her as an adult, like scary, broken person that I would <laughs> like, yeah, oh, yeah, the, the, like a cat lady. You know, like there's something really cliched about someone that can't interact with other people she has this ex-boyfriend who pops in and out of it he's really disturbing i seriously added as an adult am very 
put off and disturbed by this subplot of her abusive boyfriend who steals her animals to sell to medical research. That does not fit this <laughs> film. There's one scene where he's going to backhand slap, and I'm like, what? And I am like paying close attention during the commentary of this. I'm like, you gotta talk. Because that commentary was recorded like 15 years later. I'm like, you better bring this up. They're talking <laughs> only about puppetry. I'm like, you're not going to talk about how you put a wife beater in this little kid's movie. You know, but I do think Sheedy's got a dark side. I mean, if you read the poetry <laughs> she was writing at this time, I'm not kidding. When she finally published her book of poetry in 91, it was all about these 80s years. And there's like an abortion poem. There's like a rape poem. There's like alcoholism poem. So I believe she probably was the one saying, you know, we need to make him scarier. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, he feels kind of like an off-the-shelf 80s abusive boyfriend. Like, they plucked him out of Footloose and put him here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's in like three or four scenes, and in two of them, he ends up on the ground tackling his girlfriend. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Like I've been, I've been married for almost twenty years, and I tell you what, I've never once tackled my wife. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Success. Congratulations to you both. I also don't have a red Trans Am, so that might be part of it. But. Yeah, I. We needed a villain. We can all agree that we needed a character in this mold. However, this guy comes off. He's in it, so he's marginalized. I feel like it works because we don't see him that much. But yeah, I understand why you would collect a house full of broken animals after you dated this guy. This guy is scary if i'm trying to draw this out i would think that her boyfriends were also broken animals and sh maybe she thought she could fix them but mm. no he's completely unnecessary we have a villain and that villain is scroder too close to scrotum right yeah very oh, close. i think they even call him scrotum once i i did <laughs> i don't know what they did but gw bailey villainous persona extraordinaire having hounded Gutenberg through several police academies by this point, is here as the military armed head security mean guy for Nova. He was so typecast as a cop and security guard, he'd play the same role the next year in Mannequin, as I mentioned. Yeah. Oh, she's the same character every time he shows up. Yeah, you hire him because you want him to do his thing, and I think it's effective for this kind of movie. I mean, it wouldn't play in a more sophisticated movie, but in a cartoonish movie that straddles the tween years of you understanding the adult world and still being a child, I think he works as an authority figure that you love to hate. I think he's more competent here. I'll agree he always plays the same thing, but it's not like he's Gutenberg, who's just the exact same person in every role. He has different degrees of doofiness. Like, he's practically non-functional dumb in Mannequin. And he's pretty stupid in the Police Academy films, and they put one over on him. This is the first time I've seen him play actually competent and slightly insane. Yeah, and the weird thing is he doesn't get abused. This Frank guy will end up having a fight with, with number five and losing and getting to pants. But I expected some slime to be dumped on G.W. Bailey. I expected him to like be really humiliated for trying to catch this robot. But he kind of wins. 
Yeah, in every other movie, that happens to him. And I can't believe we're discussing G.W. Bailey's performances this much. It's probably more than anybody <laughs> has ever discussed it before. But nonetheless, this is a different twist for him. <laughs> He's showing range. Who would have thought? Short circuit. <laughs> but anyway, back to this robot, which is, again, the point. Now, when Stephanie and Johnny Five finally come together, it's the start of Act Two blatant spielberg right i mean like taken from et he's in the back of her catering truck there's all these weird lights going on like the barn in et and she comes in and believes he's an alien mm-hmm. sure that was the thing in back to the future too right like wasn't that like a big moment with marty like believing that he was an alien darth vader from planet vulcan <laughs> yeah kind of <laughs> yeah i mean that was just the presumption uh, yeah it works in that way it feels very much like the right beat the surprise is the turn once she realizes an actual robot she doesn't want to like number five anymore. She is opening the door for an alien. She's like, come on in. I'll give you all the input you want. But once it falls into the chicken coop and she can read the serial number underneath, she's like, oh, I hate you. Well, she takes in stray animals and an alien is one that fits her mold. She doesn't seem too tech savvy. She doesn't have a Commodore 64 in the corner. True. I'm not even sure she has a VCR. She does have a TV. She has a skunk, but she doesn't have a VCR. <laughs> so I think that she would go more for an alien than a robot. Yeah. Well, she even at one point calls the animals a lower life form. Yes. I noticed that. I was like, that is strange for someone that loves animals so much. But again, I guess for her, and we have to remember the 80s. I didn't have a personal computer at this time. Robots were something you only saw at the Coke machine or at the arcade or in the movies. I guess you just would not consider artificial intelligence alive that this would be a very new thing to think that life could be created in a robot even today yeah i would be a little shocked to find a robot sure <laughs> sure although we're acclimated i definitely feel like we're cyborgs now we we're comfortable with the interaction but at this time nature is seen as the opposite as the robotics and so here's someone from nature and animals who's just not ready to embrace it also is worth pointing out she knows the reputation of the company that made him and she knows that they design weapons so she calls him up and is like warmongers come get your you know kill bot so here the real thrust of the story begins and we're you know 45 minutes into this 100 minute film and nova now knows where he is because he'd gone outside of the range of their tracker but by knowing where he is they have a portable one on a another truck and so ben and newton get out there and Johnny Five learns what it means to disassemble when he steps on a cricket. Aww. You know, this is tough. I gotta feel in a movie when you gotta bring up death and death is forever, like, there's a real chance that there's gonna be some blubbering in the audience that parents may, may or not want to. I'll give the movie props for going there. They're really trying to look at issues of creation and mortality and not just saying he could be anything. He is very specifically a robot and they're looking at what that means. So uh, they had to do it. I think that this is the way to do it in this movie. He, he crushes a cricket, reassembles Stephanie. He can't be reassembled. And that is enough for him to realize that once he's taken apart, he will lose 
what has made him special as well. Although there's no proof of that. I wanted to say, I don't know why that would necessarily... Could, it could just be like going to sleep if they turned him off, right? I mean, it, it, there's no guarantee that he'll die. Well, they do power him down at one point, and Stephanie says, you're paralyzing him. Yeah, I, I, I thought that would... We find out that they didn't actually power down. I thought he was playing possum. No, they shut down his body, but yet his... CPU and his neck joint still function and eyebrows. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I would think off is off. But we're going to talk a lot about what it means for Johnny Five to be disassembled next week and if it would kill him or not. They go into a lot of detail in that in the sequel. Really? They go, yes. We're going to go down that road more? Okay, because I yes. thought this was about as far as you want to go with a 10-year-old audience. But all right. I can't wait for that. With this movie, all we know is that his sentience does not live in his arm. (laughs) Yes, he replaces the arm just fine. But I think that doing the cricket's the right thing. I mean, could you imagine if he'd killed the dog and tried to reassemble? (laughs) Yeah, there were a lot of animals here. I'd be okay with the ducks, but, you know, not everyone. I'm pretty sure he got a couple chickens in that fall, too. (laughs) Yeah, true, true. Yeah, there was a lot of feather death there off screen. But... I think even no kid is going to get weepy over a cricket. And I mean, I knew what it was to kill bugs, you know, at a, by age five. So mm. that is kind of a deep concept, but it is also what gives him the motivation to flee because he was ready to go back. He is wide eyed innocence until he associates a disassemble with death. And Stephanie just says, you know, they'll disassemble you and figure out what went wrong. And Yeah, he hasn't even met Scroder yet. I mean, that would be enough to know, like, I don't want to go with this guy. But they come packing heat. And, you know, E.T. did it. It was the time. Nowadays, they would never have a kid's movie with so much gun violence. But that the bad guys come guns a-blazing and they actually get several shots in on Johnny here. Yeah, I'm so sad by the age we live in where you wouldn't be able to have movies like Cloak and Dagger and Goonies and Short Circuit. Because of the the shoot first mentality? (laughs) Because of guns being fired at children? Like, these guys are the worst military operation ever. They show up and immediately start firing. But here's the thing. They create a circle around them and they're firing at themselves, essentially. (laughs) I thought that, too. Like, they are sometimes really in each other's way and the one behind is shooting. I'm like... Did you shoot a magic bullet around the guy in front of your gun? <laughs> Maybe that's why they're making the robots. They're like, we can afford to have the worst security human team because we got the robots here and they will eventually be replaced. I don't know. But yeah, that is that is the fun of it is that if you're scared about men with guns, they're so bumbling. They really pose no threat. And Johnny gets a little red eye here. You know, he has a he drives a car for the first time and we get some car destruction which is always fun to watch but then yeah he he does fire back with the lasers he takes out a few boats one thing i misremembered perhaps the only shock coming back to this movie is i remembered johnny five being bulletproof like robocop but no bullets hurt him they ding his paint and take him out yeah and i do think this could be upsetting for younger kids i mean i'm guessing your 11 year old daughter is okay particularly in this day and age but a five-year-old may not like seeing the cute robot get put down in a hail of bullets yeah no she let out a little whimper when they deactivated him You know, she was feeling that. Yeah. I do have to question the staging of this scene, however, beyond just the military's triangulation of them. 
I was confused as to who was where. Like, because they ended up on that cliff, mm. and then Gutenberg shows up with Ben, and then it seemed like the the military showed up on the other side of a pond, but then they were also <laughs> behind them. I couldn't get an aerial view of what was going on here. Yeah, I'm. I think you're on to something. There probably were five different filming locations that they're claiming are all the same field. But yeah, I agree. It felt like a populated dock. In some shots, and then in other times, it felt like they were in the Scottish Highlands or something. I don't know <laughs> what was going on here. Honestly, they may have taken footage from the climax, which takes place on a mountain, and just inserted it here and been like, it's green. Mm. <laughs> and Johnny Five is captured, and perhaps our second biggest moment of fear for him in this movie, the last being at the climax. But his little eyebrows pick up a wrench, and he powers himself on and jumps out and heads right back to Stephanie. Mm-hmm. And nice software. You know, I, this is what I remember. I think it was even in the trailer. This is what I really remembered. Is he the romantic partner for Stephanie here? Because I always believed this movie was about Steve Gutenberg and Ali Sheedy getting together and the robot being the matchmaker. But watching it now, I'm like, the robot wants her. Like, there's no, like, Steve Goot, Steve, they don't even meet for an hour, like, 70 minutes of this movie. There's not a date scene between Allie and Steve. It's mostly her and the robot dancing around here. I was watching this movie and thinking about another sci-fi 1986 classic we reviewed, Howard the Duck. Of course you were. And how I always saw that movie as a romance between Tim Robbins and Leah Thompson. I never saw it as between her and the duck. And I talked about on that show how I thought that sex scene, she was bluffing, but she wasn't really into a duck. And you've kind of changed my mind about that with your vehement duck reaction. (laughs) I guess I'm always the one to see this going on here. This feels like not a normal relationship. Even the media like showed up on her door and was like, did the robot molest you? That would not be my first question. (laughs) <laughs> well, the the thing is, he was designed as a marital aid, and so... <laughs> but they don't know that. I will say that this didn't feel obvious to me as a kid watching this. I didn't walk away from this going, oh yeah, the robot and Ali Sheedy love each other. Mm-hmm. But sitting next to my daughter watching it, she picked up on it. She looked at me, she's like, are they falling in love? <laughs> I'm like, okay, so this is pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah, he's making her breakfast the next morning. They were dancing into the wee hours and who knows what else. Yeah, yeah they're dancing to Saturday Night Fever. I mean, I've mentioned John Badham a couple of times, but I think his most respected film yeah. is probably... Saturday Night Fever. He directed that. Yeah, I would like to do that retrospective. I like the first movie, and Staying Alive needs to be discussed. (laughs) And, I mean, I like Badham's other films. I think I've seen most of his movies, but Nick of Time, Stakeout, Another Stakeout, Point of No Return, The Hard Way, these are all recommends from me. It's been a while since I've seen many of them. I would certainly not want to say that. But I feel like if he's not an artist, he was at least a competent craftsman for a good decade there. And he made many films that many people watched and were hits. So, And this was one of them. So I do not think of him as doing a lot of action. I feel like he's more comfortable here in these romance scenes. I feel like this is what he'd rather be doing in the movie is having, maybe that's why it feels imbalanced. Maybe that's why we feel like they're falling in love is because this is what the movie is best at. 
actually that romance went a lot further. Apparently, test audiences didn't like scenes with Ali Sheedy kissing, hugging, and so on with the robot. There were far more romantic scenes, and test audiences didn't just put negative scores, they hissed and booed. So a lot of those were cut. Hmm. Or they like picnicking under a tree. (laughs) (laughs) I would have liked to have seen like a montage, maybe the him jumping like the cricket to happy together. (laughs) <laughs> the mind reels and what it could be but you know there were strange romantic pairings in the 80s i don't feel like it's any weirder than andrew mccarthy screwing a wooden kim cattrall and mannequin i mean yeah to each their own jesus gutenberg's competing with a robot and cattrall's a wooden dummy these police academy people are not having good romantic subplots <laughs> they don't really deserve better But eventually this robot's going to be like, you need to call up Newton. You need to get Steve Gutenberg into this movie. He does sort of do the matchmaker thing, but it comes really late. It's almost at the climax by the time that they're actually a couple. Yeah, like you say, it's an hour into it in a scene that was added in filming where the director told the writers, you know, we really can't wait till the very end of the movie to have these two get together. So they contrive this scene of them at this country western bar yeah it's frank's old place it's the ex-boyfriend this is where he used to take her for dates it's a magical place where you sit down and beers appear in front of you (laughs) (laughs) and johnny's hanging out back doing his like baseball thing it's worth pointing out he's read the encyclopedia he is a well-read he he endorses literacy i appreciate that about this robot (laughs) but he has spent an inordinate amount of time watching television as well and i do feel like a lot of the gags that are going to happen in the later half of this movie is him replaying these scenes he, he like will do the three stooges bit here he's reliving a howard cosell baseball moment at one point he even does marvelous which i don't think anyone even billy crystal i don't think remembers that bit <laughs> oh sure okay so interesting this scene at frank's old hangout is inserted in it also is the last time we see fisher stevens character mm-hmm. like he's out of the movie from this point on that felt rude. I was like, he deserves to be second banana. I agree. He isn't the star, but they kick him out. No, he comes back, remember? He's like asking for all the details when Goot leaves that restaurant. After the restaurant, yeah, to make you understand, in case you weren't getting it, that Gutenberg basically was like orgasmic about touching her hand. He gets to relive that with the friend. But when Johnny actually wants to take him off to explain that he's alive, I mean, they could have taken Ben, but they were like, no, you get out of the truck. They take the Nova van, but they don't take Ben. Yeah, and that is the last time we see him, but he is a bit of a coward. He's like, all right, gone. It just felt weird, you know, because he would he had been such a comic foil throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. And by the time you yeah. get to the end scene, you're like, you could almost use a little bit of a quip here or there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wait, we haven't seen him for 20 minutes. You're right. It's total bull dyke that he's not in it. <laughs> they needed to have a lady bot, right? There needed to be another one that maybe he could romance. Maybe that's what he'll get in the sequel. I don't know. God, <laughs> it's a robot. It doesn't necessarily have gender. I'm just thinking of three-way opportunities. <laughs> and you do wonder, as they go off camping together, it will be Steve Gutenberg, Ali Sheedy, and this robot, and... I mean, we joke, but I think it serves two purposes. There is the falling in love thing that they're trying to check that box off. But mostly, it's worth pointing out, Newton is very hesitant to say that his creation could have a mind of its own. And it takes a lot of convincing. We have a lot of scenes of him 
being like, he's alive. I don't believe you. He's alive. I don't agree. When the robot laughs at a racist joke about <laughs> Jewish people. Only a living person. Yes. <laughs> and not a very bright one. Oh, this, this robot is borderline anti-Semitic. I believe he is alive. <laughs> it's okay because Gutenberg told it, right? I don't know. <laughs> it's okay because it was the 80s. Yeah, exactly. It's there. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's To me, that's more uncomfortable than Fisher Stevens is yeah. to talk about the rabbi that doesn't want to give God money. I'm proud to say that I had to explain it to my daughter. Yes. She didn't get why that was funny. Yeah, but we grew up in the 70s. I like the part where he says, hey, laser lips, your mama was a snowblower. Yeah. That's where the humor works. That was the one that I took to the playground. Like, anytime the robot is riffing on being a, a robot and saying things like that, I feel like that's where the actual humor plays to kids. Uh, this joke the, is, yeah, not funny really for anybody, but it is a pivotal in the sense that it gets Gutenberg to finally admit, okay... He must be alive to laugh at this so long. When, in fact, Siri laughs at my jokes, so <laughs> it just could be really advanced AI. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is the bonding moment. And then he disassembles Johnny Five. Did you guys notice that? He's like taking him apart, checking the wires. Yeah, he, well, Johnny is programmed himself. I thought that was an interesting detail of like, he's modified. Like, he was like, ah, I can be better. And we never saw that scene, but he has actually gone into his own circuitry and improved himself. Himself, so that he is his own creator. And also exposes the big red button we haven't spoken about yet. It's the all-purpose big red button. It turns you <laughs> on, it turns you off. I don't turns I mean, me on. <laughs> I bet. <Yeah. laughs> so did a lot of things at that age. <laughs> <laughs> so now that Newton is on Johnny's side, though, it's time for Nova to bring in the final assault. And what I find very interesting is that Scroder is just like gone rogue this is a as they repeatedly say 11 million dollar robot and crosby is saying don't blow it up and more importantly the president of the company marner is saying don't blow it up and scroder to a degree i almost empathize because this robot does have a laser on him and so why put his people in danger even for 11 million dollars a life isn't worth 11 million dollars but on the other hand insubordination goes a long way <laughs> yeah but it, it fits into the what we think about if someone designs nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction they must just be kill happy they must shoot qu first and ask questions later it fits the why we think that this is a bad company to begin with steve gutenberg will quit i do like the scene though which starts the climax of robot on robot violence where it's johnny five against the three of them as a kid, I didn't really care for the Three Stooges, so the fact that he programmed them to do this routine annoyed the hell out of me. I would have rather had destruction and violence, but now as an adult, I go with the fact that he programmed them to do television. I thought you needed more robots. Honestly, I feel like that was the fight we really wanted to see. That he's going to have the standoff with people at the end is... It's a different thing. They're doing the E.T. death scene replay instead of a, a legitimate fight. And he wins it by trickery. He outsmarts them. He not only can program himself, he can build a replica and use that as a decoy. Which brings to me one of my biggest sticking points with this. Arnie, you just got done saying $11 million about four times in a row because this movie drives it into our head that these things are $11 million. Yet they have vans driving around with 
just multiple <laughs> spare parts for these things. I mean, that van must have had a hundred million dollars worth of spare parts. True, true. <laughs> we don't know if he's as good as the other saints. I mean, it could be just all for maybe the expensive stuff is back at the lab that you put in. But it was able to roll around and and speak like him. So it didn't speak a word. It didn't say bonsai. Maybe he said bonsai, but that thing didn't talk. It just went in a straight direction. I have a feeling if they didn't blow it up with the helicopters that it would have just gone right off a cliff. Okay, so it would have been easily exposed if they weren't so trigger-happy. But, you know, you got to have this moment in the... I don't feel like it's one of the better ones. E.T., you cried. Tinkerbell, you clapped for her. Did you fall for number five? Maybe I was too old. I did not. I didn't remember this is how it went down. I I was sitting here wondering, like, okay, so are they going to go back and find the head Mm -hmm. and build him? Yeah, me too. I forgot how he came back, but or the trickery involved. Yeah, I was certain of one thing, that he would be jamming to Eldebarge by the end of all of this. You're wrong in both counts. I know. <laughs> but I at 11, I totally fell for this. As an adult, I know there's a sequel. So I'm like, how are they getting out of that one? I, yes. I didn't remember him being blown up. But yeah, the whole decoy thing. And apparently a couple of things behind the scenes on this. First of all, the director was nervous as hell with those helicopters because this was shortly after Twilight Zone. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah. he was really like very nervous about how these choppers were flying over their lead actors and things. But the other thing is, apparently, after Johnny Five is blown up, they had to cut down the scene because test audiences they went on for several minutes of Gutenberg and mm-hmm. Sheedy thinking he's dead, Weeping. and the audiences just were like checked out. They were so bummed and mad, right? That they empathized with this robot so much. So they cut it down, but it still seems like a decent amount of time before Johnny Five reveals himself. I mean, they drive far away. This whole thing's over, and Johnny Five's just in the back flipping his coin like, I'm going to mess with them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes, as they drive away with their van from a company he no longer works for (laughs) filled with millions of dollars worth of robot parts. Yeah, now that you point that out, they would not, he would be walking. They would not let him go in the car, but it is a triumphant back from the dead moment as joyous as et's tummy glowing again we we are so happy our childhood selves anyway are so happy to see him pop up in the back and And my adult self damn it yeah i mean yeah (laughs) but in a different way i i mean as an adult you're like how is he going to get out of it as a child you really might have believed that he was dead yep i did i mean et had to go away yeah Right, exactly. And that is the difference here is it's a true happy ending that Ali Sheedy doesn't have to make a choice. She can get Gutenberg and the robot, which should make Montana even more sketchy than her house (laughs) in Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and he christens himself Johnny Five. We talked about that already. And the one thing that I found very amusing is once Johnny Five drives your car, Nobody else can, because he's tearing out your driver's seat. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we got those on the road now. The Google cars are here in L.A., and uh, I have not seen them, but I know people that say there are cars driving around by themselves. I guess we need to get okay with this, but... Oh, I'm totally okay with it. I cannot wait till the day that I can watch a movie while driving to work and driving <laughs> to a convention across the country. Uh, you think you'll have work. <laughs> I'm the one who programs the cars, Stuart. (laughs) All right, then you'll be all right, but everyone else. Arnie, you just evoked visions of a movie I can't believe we haven't talked about yet here with this movie. You're looking for a Wally type of (laughs) thing. Yeah. 
you know, and Wally looks a lot like Johnny Five here. Good point. I I had not thought about that, but you're right. This is Wally probably did take uh, some inspiration from this story. Yeah, the treads in his head are very very similar to the Johnny Five model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the themes. But in 1986, it looked like a happy ending that the robot is driving the car and they're all going to go to Montana, but not to Eldebarge. It is their other hit song from the movie, <laughs> Come and Follow Me, by Max Carl and Marcy Levy, those hit makers of the 80s. <laughs> Where did they dig this one up? You laugh, but Max Carl... Has a history of movie music, mm-hmm. including songs on the soundtrack for Police Academy, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Weird Science. Okay, I know Oingo Boingo, not his work. And Short Circuit. Oh, well, who doesn't know Come and Follow Me? Yeah, this was so the, I mean, he even says, I'm Johnny now. They should have played Who's Johnny. I don't know why we went with this John Denver wannabe. But it's like a folksy song. They played it earlier, too. This is the song that was playing when they were in that bar. Oh, I, I was able to tune <laughs> it out there. But here it's... Yeah, it was in the background there. Here it's front and center. Yes. Maybe they played Who's Johnny too often, though. Because they played it like... Johnny hears it on the radio previously while driving around. And then later on, there's like a major sequence to it. You can never play it enough. I'm going to rock out as soon as we end this. I'm going to rock out to that. I felt like it was done twice, and it it probably could have come back again. It was first when Stephanie turned on the radio in the house. Right, right. That's the first time we heard it. And then when he was driving away, he found it on a radio station. And that was 30 minutes ago. We could play it again for the credits because these credits make you all of a sudden realize once again that you're watching a movie from the (laughs) mid-80s. Whatever goodwill you've built up with not going crazy period at this point is just shattered with the crappy song and the remember when montage of Mm -hmm. video clips. Yeah, exactly. With scenes we never even saw, like him being in a junkyard in a car that's being scrapped. Where would they have put that? (laughs) What makes me think of 80s is that helicopter shot just flying into the mountains with all the shaky cam. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right, so Justin Stewart... Do you recommend Short Circuit, Justin? If you would have asked me if I would have enjoyed this movie before going back and watching it again, I probably would have said, "Eh, it's a cornball 80s movie. I mean, I I remember seeing it and I remember thinking as a kid it was kind of fun, but it didn't really stay with me over these years. You know, it's not like Star Wars or... Even Breakfast Club, you know, Breakfast Club pops up every once in a while in everyday life. But Short Circuit kind of came and went. But I probably would have said no. I, I do not recommend watching that movie. But going back and revisiting it, I was surprised to find out that this movie has a lot of heart for, on paper, what should be a cheesy movie about technology from the mid-80s. You know, it holds up. And like I said before, I watched this with my 11-year-old daughter, who is the same age as me when this movie came out. And... Together, we had a good time watching it. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I'm going to say Green Arrow. I liked it. Stuart. Well, you know, the good thing about this Summer of Sci-Fi 1986 series that we did was I get to have two perspectives, that I come at it from two different ways. The adult me and then who I was in the summer of 1986. And, you know, as an adult, 
disassemble. I mean, I recommend you go watch Blade Runner or Ex Machina or some other movie that deals with artificial intelligence in a more sophisticated way. This movie's not sophisticated. It doesn't engage the adult mind. But the arrow, the color of the arrow, is dependent on the me of 86. And yeah, I'm going to go mild green. I think that there is a lot of charm to this robot. And I think, technically, anybody can be impressed that they're able to get a performance out of what they had here. I do feel like the puppeteers, the designers, accomplished what they set out to do. They made a robot movie in a decade filled with robot movies where it was really a robot and not a guy in a suit. And I think that's something to be commended as well. So I didn't even love it as a kid. I was probably 13 when I saw it, but I thought it was okay. And I thought it has some interesting ideas to mull over and a lot of juvenile humor and a little bit of risque adult humor too that is perfect for the younger set, the tweens. So my old green arrow. I was damn nervous to watch this movie again because while I watched it and the sequel pretty often, I haven't seen either of these movies since my early teens, 14, 15, somewhere around there. I hadn't gone back. You're right, Justin. It does not come up. I mean, it came up when I saw Chappie, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is not a movie that's in heavy circulation on television. And going back, I thought this might be another Goonies. I notoriously Red Arrowed Goonies because I loved it as a kid, but man, is it just... I found it really hard to watch as an adult, just loud and obnoxious. And this movie has nothing like sloth love chunk, nothing that bad. I I found this to be a completely acceptable movie. And I found out that one of the puppeteers who designed Johnny Five, I mean, there was one who did work on Blade Runner and some of that stuff, Stuart, so he was bringing that kind of knowledge, but... He also worked on Herbie Goes Bananas. <laughs> and as soon as I thought about that, I'm like, yeah, this is like a modernized Herbie movie, right? Instead of the car coming to life, it's the robot coming to life. You don't have to worry about Lindsay Lohan in it either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that as far as it goes, yeah, as an adult, I give it a mild recommend i mean i i'm no longer jumping up and down on crickets about it the way i was when i was a kid <laughs> but you were killing crickets it was a metaphor yeah i, I know <laughs> but i definitely think that johnny five the song the movie everything except for gutenberg really works for me in this film and he is the supposed star or co-star but I'm not sad we're not going to see him in the sequel. I was when the sequel came out, though, but that's what we'll be discussing next week. Yeah, my memories of that are real vague. But yeah, all I remember is that all they could rustle up is Fisher Stevens. And I think Michael McKean is in it as well, like Lenny from Laverne and Shirley. He is. And I don't know if they couldn't get Sheedy and Gutenberg back. Maybe I'll know by next week. But I always thought that. But hearing the director talk about how what people loved coming out of this movie wasn't Sheedy and her animals, wasn't no. Gutenberg, it no. was Ben and Johnny. Half right. I think that's probably why they went in with that sequel. But that's next week's show. I did also find out in my research for this show, something completely slipped my radar as a Short Circuit fan, probably because I didn't have a Commodore 64, but... There was a short circuit video game. What? Like wow. Atari 2600? 
Well, for Commodore 64 and Amiga. Oh, I didn't have those systems. Nobody had those systems. Well, Commodore 64 was the most popular personal computer of the 80s. So millions of people had them. No one in our neighborhood. I mean, an Amiga. You said the Amiga. I'm like, oh, man. That was like as rare as an Intellivision. But this game... I will give it total props. I didn't have time to load up an emulator and play it. And after seeing some gameplay videos on YouTube, I probably won't. It's a side-scrolling game that tries to be like Mario, where Johnny is being attacked by Nova people and also ducks and gerbils and birds. And Mm. so you have to duck, jump, and shoot your way from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. Wait, are you avoiding the animals or or shooting them? You're avoiding the animals. You have to jump and duck the animals and shoot the Nova people. No, you should have to be taking them to Stephanie's house. Right. (laughs) The funniest thing is at the very end of the game, I found an end of game YouTube thing. And if you hadn't seen this movie, you literally roll onto a truck And then it looks like you turn around and roll out and a helicopter blows you up. So like you played the entire game (laughs) just to die. To die a fiery death. (laughs) Yeah, this is the movie to know it's a happy ending. Yeah, it had a text box that says you successfully built a decoy, but that's just when the game ends. (laughs) You couldn't read those words. You were in trouble. That's hilarious. Well, but... The one thing I loved about it is it had like an 8-bit MIDI version of Who's Johnny, and that is awesome. If you check out the video, hear the theme song, because I like I want to get an emulator just to make that my ringtone now. Oh, I think that needs to be laying underneath this entire episode. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be back next week. Before then, we are going to talk Independence Day Resurgence coming out this Friday. Stuart, Jacob, and I back on the Silver Level Donation Series talking about last week's film. One of the most popular or notorious, depending on which one of the hosts you ask. I think we had a lot of fun discussing it, but maybe not necessarily watching it. And I don't know what to think about the sequel. Yeah, you haven't seen it as of the recording of Short Circuit here, so... The way you can support our show, keep allowing us to do the show we do every week from the Bourne series on Tuesdays to the upcoming Star Trek and Suicide Squad and Stephen King films is to donate to our show. You can donate $10 or more and you get five bonus podcasts, the Independence Day duology as well as Men in Black, $25 or more, and you can flashback with us for six more 1986 films i listed those at the top of the show but if you enjoyed this short circuit episode probably really enjoy hearing us discuss another sentient robot jinx in space camp (laughs) yeah that's true yeah we got a lot more of that discussion and he is a lot crazier than number five and that is got a sloth love chunk jinx loves max kind of thing going on (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of weirdness in that movie i just want to put it out there but i loved it so go for it i i definitely had a lot of fun going through the summer of 86 and so i was happy to do one more here but next week we're not going to be in 86 it's 88 when we get to short circuit 2 and next week is 84 when we get to ghostbusters this has been one of the most requested series all the time i mean with Back to the Future and everything, but they just kept talking about a new one, kept talking about a new one, so we never did it. He held out for years, yes. It it seemed like it was really going to happen a few times, and we never did it, but now it really is happening. 
and we are starting that. So for $35 or more, you get the 1986 podcast, Men in Black, Independence Day, and the Ghostbusters reviews. You can find all the details by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com or watching the Independence Day video I posted to Facebook and Twitter. So we really could use your help to keep the show going and going strong and able to do a few more bonus shows. Don't make us disassemble, Arnie. No disassemble now playing. (laughs) So, Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. Anytime. And until next week, when you gotta go, don't squeeze the Charmin. Why did you ignore your programming? Programming says destroy is disassemble. Make dead. Number five cannot. Why cannot? Is wrong. Incorrect. Newton Crosby, PhD, not know this? Well, of course I know it's wrong to kill, but who told you? I told me. Thank you for listening to this bonus now playing short circuit movie review. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Magnificent! Magnificent! Now that, my friend, is how you kick ass. Now Playing is a podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep reviewing movies week after week. You're leaving me with my back to the wall here. I mean, we gotta come up with something. It's not possible. We are the type of people who have everything in our favor going against us. And right now, through July 31st, 2016, if you donate to Now Playing, you can get over a dozen bonus movie reviews. Megabytes of input. Hear reviews of all films in the Men in Black, Independence Day, and Ghostbusters series. Plus reviews of six sci-fi classics from 1986, Critters, Invaders from Mars, Labyrinth, Space Camp, Big Trouble in Little China, and Night of the Creeps. Well, we are manufacturing them like gangbangers. Find details on how to donate by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. All now, our operators are standing by. Newton, come on, hurry up, they're waiting for you. Now Playing's Short Circuit Retrospective Series is edited by Arnie. Look, just get back to work. So you're ordering me? I'm not Slave-O-Matic, I'm Johnny Five. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. I just knew this guy once who started talking like you right before he decided he was God. Now Playing is not affiliated with TriStar Pictures, the Terman Foster Company, or any of the makers or copyright holders of the Short Circuit films. Short Circuit and Short Circuit 2 are the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. Frankie, you broke the unwritten law. You rat it on your friends. That, Frankie, your enemies don't respect you. You got no friends no more. You got nobody, Frankie. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Dubious. Hard to believe. Now playing is a Venganza Media Production copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. What do we do now? Well, I don't know about you, but I am planning to scream and run. Good answer. <laughs> My record buttons here. Hold on, I need to find my recorder. Do that. I am recording. Uh.
Um, why aren't you here? <clears throat> Every time I go to Wiki for short circuit, it, recording the first line I read is uh, sometimes abbreviated short is an electrical current that allows a current to travel along an unintended path. Nope, that's not the Wiki article I want. <laughs> Today we're discussing Short Circuit, starring Ali Sheedy, Steve Gutenberg, the Goot, Fisher Stevens, Austin Pendleton, and G.W. Bailey, directed by John Badham. This is the Now Playing co-host who always likes getting his hands on new software, Arnie. And this is Specialized Talker Undergoing Art Retrospective Torture in Los Angeles. What does that spell out? You didn't know Stuart in L.A. was an acronym? <laughs> Justin, this is where you say your name. <laughs> is he on the call? Something went haywire. Hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> I just got this text. <laughs> and show over. <laughs> Hello? Yay, you're back. Jesus, so sorry. Hey, it happens. We all have our technical <laughs> problem nights. <laughs> Swear to God, this never happens to me. <laughs> Your VoIP dysfunction. <laughs> sorry, Stuart. Oh, no problem. No, but the second you came back, I decided to spill a giant jug of iced tea. So I'm just... Hold on one second. <laughs> You just don't want to work this morning. It You're is. like, why do you get up this early to do it? Because it takes us five hours of together. <laughs> All right. I'm just this waiting for Marjorie to poke her head in and go, how long are you talking about short circuit? <laughs> short circuit. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the damn robot yet, All right. <laughs> Shit's going to start coming alive over there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That'll be the finale. I'll save that one. Alright, I'm back. And I'm recording. Okay, I'm going to hit record again. This is where it all went wonky last time, so let's okay. cross our fingers. Yeah. Gave us a great blooper, because after long silence, we're like, Justin, this is where you say your name. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to hit record. Are you there? Justin? Justin? Son of a bitch! Oh, no. True. I think it totally, I think the total, totally, I'm turning 80s. This is the height of Yakov Shmirnov's career, too, so. <laughs> yeah, as soon as that Berlin all fell, so did his career. <laughs> he still performs in Branson, Missouri. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> like, as, not just performs, like, he's the draw. Is, is there Putin jokes? <laughs> what could he even do with that? She said warmonger, and that, that hit my brain in such a way where I'm like, hey, how does somebody become a monger? <laughs> like, Because you can either be a warmonger or a fishmonger. Yes. I haven't heard of any of the other type of mongers. It's true. And it sounds like a, <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a diss. Like, I mean, there's probably nothing wrong with being a fishmonger, but that feels like um, an insult. Right? What about ironmonger? It's about the same as warmonger, yeah. but slightly different. Yeah, yeah, it's on that end of the scale. I mean, there's there should be a huge mm -hmm. valley of jobs between fish and warmongering. Am I a podcast monger that I put out a <laughs> slew of shows? You may very well be. I didn't know that you had 
heard us say that. We only we only say that behind your back. But yeah, maybe. <laughs> he definitely does. He does John a famous Wayne. baseball announcer. Yeah. Oh, he's doing John Voight. No, John Wayne. Oh yeah, John, John Wayne. Voight would be harder to do. What do you do? Yell at Ang- Angelina Jolie. <laughs> Eat something. <laughs> Stop making out with your brother. <laughs> I deserve the Oscar, not you. <laughs> Stuart has just succumbed to calling me a horn dog these days on the show. <laughs> this is a story I want to tell so bad. <laughs> is it involved Muppets? Yes. <laughs> well, now you got it. No, you, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> to my grave. There's just some things you don't. <laughs> this is like the second show in a row where that's going to be. In the I know. Loopers. Like that's become a thing now. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. All right, come on in. No, uh, we're just finishing. There was an hour of technical difficulties. Everybody's. Mostly Justin's. Mostly Justin's. Like ninety nine point nine percent. But I did spill some tea. Mild recommend. I mean, I, I'm no longer jumping up and down on crickets about it the way I was when I was a kid. <laughs> but you were killing crickets. It was a metaphor. <laughs> I, I know. But I just, want, I just want to underline the fact that your metaphor also endorses animal cruelty. Are crickets animals? <laughs> no. <laughs> Crickets are alive, but they're not animals. They're I endorse cockroach cruelty, fly cruelty, any kind of insect cruelty. And you know what? In my old house, the basement was a little moist. It was infested with crickets and spiders, and the two killed each other left and right. I'd find desiccated crickets and eaten spiders. So, yeah, I, I endorse killing all of them. I got an exterminator. <laughs> but but anyway, back yeah. to this movie. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking arachnophobia. <laughs> And until next week, when you gotta go, don't squeeze the Charmin. <laughs> Can you do that in a fake Indian accent? No, that was Johnny Five. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs>